All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and return to our study of the book of Revelation. Returning to Revelation chapter 18, and uh, this morning I'm sure there are times, at least in our Sunday morning service, when you may have a curiosity or a wonder about why we read certain passages of Scripture before we teach, or why that passage is being read, and uh, typically how it works is I'll study what I'm studying, and then I'll ask Russ to read a certain passage, and so he faithfully does that for us, and I asked him to read Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 23 this morning for a specific reason, and that reason is that I, I have a concern. Uh, I A concern not much different, really, than the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus was warning people about thinking that they're okay when they're not okay. Cautioning them, of course, in verses 15... Uh, up to verse 19, that there's false teachers out there who will teach false things. Don't follow them. You can know a tree by its fruit. The bad tree has bad fruit. The good tree has good fruit. So if there's a bad root, there's bad fruit, right? If there's bad fruit, you know the root's bad. And he said, "But, but watch out because there will be those, even in the end, who will say, I'm okay. I'm very religious, Lord, I I did all these things, and yet Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. You claim to know me, you've claimed even great and glorious things by my name, but I never knew you. And I'm concerned because oftentimes we come to the Scriptures and We hear the Scriptures taught or we think about the Scriptures in some way or we hear something and we say, well, that's just not practical for me. How do I put that into practice in my time? Why is that? Uh, You know, that's those are points that really aren't relevant to me today. And I wonder oftentimes when we say that if we're Matthew 7 kind of people. Where we say, Lord, Lord, I did all this in your name, but but this part's not practical to me. Therefore, what does that have to do with me? And I really don't think about it anymore. I don't put any practice to it. And I'm concerned about that as we study Revelation because we believe the church, we, the church universal, the church local, won't be in the tribulation. And I fear sometimes that we don't listen to these things with a sense in which The truths and the principles about the God who is saying these things, the truth and the principles about what is being said and who is saying it is for us. Because it's the same God who's going to carry out the judgment here. It's the same God who's with us right now. And we don't want to fall into that trap and to think that this isn't for us. Because it is for us, maybe not in the sense of the judgment itself, because we are the church and we believe this is God drawing people, His people Israel back, but the truth about God is for us, and that truth ought to affect us every day. It ought to affect about every way and how you think. It ought to affect everything about what you do, how you treat one another, how you think about evangelism, how you think about your own Christian life. It ought to affect every way you think and live. 
And so if you're, if you're in that place this morning and you're saying, here we go again, revelation, more of this really doesn't have anything to do with me. I'll just check out for a while. Don't check out. Engage yourself, engage your thinking about the God who's saying these things. And think about what that means as you live right now. If that's not practical to you, maybe you're back in Matthew chapter 7 as one of those who says, Lord, I know you, but someday God will say, I never knew you. And maybe if Christ came tomorrow or if the rapture happened tomorrow, you will be in this day. And we certainly don't want that. So we're here in Revelation chapter 18. And I want to read for us, beginning in verse 4, and read down through verse 19. Of course, we have already studied up through verse 8, but I want to read that so that we have an understanding of where we're going again. Beginning in verse 4 of chapter 18, John, of course, here, seeing the vision of God, says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you may not participate in her sins and that you may not receive her plagues because her sins have piled up as high as heaven. and God has remembered her iniquity. Pay her back even as she has paid and give back double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am not a widow. I will never see mourning. For this reason in one day her plagues will come, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For the Lord God who judges her is strong. Kings of the earth who committed immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble, cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. The fruit you long for has gone from you. And all that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you and men will no longer find them. And the merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe! Woe, the great city who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. Every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? 
And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, Woe, woe the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she has been laid waste. This is a rather shocking passage. Seems rather strange to us looking at it from this vantage point, especially knowing that this is future. And since we have been studying this prophecy, we are very much aware of the fact that the Lord God is going to once again intervene in history. God has supernaturally intervened in the past, and He is going to intervene again in the future. Mankind is not going to have the final say on how all this ends. Mankind in all of his wisdom, in all of his erudite pride, thinks that he can call the shots, thinks that he can do whatever he needs to do in order to preserve whatever he desires to preserve so that life will continue indefinitely. And yet God will have the final say. He will have the last word concerning the rulers of this earth. Think about that every time I think about our own government and think about how much they think they know. God will have the last word in whatever committee meeting they think they'll have to change whatever it is they want to change. God will have the final say concerning the environment. God will have the final say in all things. He will have the final say in every spiritual way. The Bible tells us that at the end of human history and the end of human rule on this earth, it is God who will unleash His furious and righteous wrath upon mankind. We read it this morning, Matthew chapter 7. If you read that entire chapter, you know that it tells us there is coming a day when the Lord will judge. And many will think they will escape that judgment. And yet they will, in fact, have to go through that judgment. This was why I began with my concern. Because there's many who believe they're okay when, in fact, they won't be okay after all. In Matthew chapter 24 and 25, there is the very teaching of Jesus Christ regarding His return and the worldwide judgment that is associated with it. The theme of judgment is all throughout the New Testament. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 says this, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. And He knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. The Lord knows how to do that. We need not fret about those things. It is God who who knows how to do all of those things and has all of that in perfect plan. And so we are not surprised that when we come to the book of the Revelation and we see all of this judgment taking place. Chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19, the theme is judgment. 
It's been judgment upon judgment upon judgment upon judgment. And it does not end until the return of Jesus Christ. And then comes a final judgment upon the earth. And the establishment of the millennial kingdom. With a final one last blow to eradicate all of that. And the new heaven and the new earth. And so here we are in chapter 18. We're almost to the end of it. We've studied judgment now for months. We've learned about the character of God and we've seen the glorious reality of the righteousness of God to do exactly what He said He would do. And we've learned much about the exactness of His Word. We've seen His glorious righteousness on display day in and day out. And we have seen and heard of His grace. Grace even up to the final moments of mankind. Saw that last week in verse 4 as he was calling his people to come out. And we know, we know intellectually, we know intuitively because this is the word of God that these judgments will culminate during a period of seven years and we know that under the term as the tribulation. And it is the second half of this seven-year period that the full fury of God's wrath will fall upon this world. And then Christ will come. He will establish His thousand-year kingdom on this earth, drawing His people back to Himself before He finally annihilates all the rejectors of Him and ushers in a new heaven and a new earth. We also know that these judgments flow through those seven years described for us in chapter 6, six through 16. And they are uh, through a series of seven seals, a series of seven trumpets, and a series of seven bowls. Those are the judgment outflows. And we looked at those intently as we have walked through this book and as John has described them for us. We know that Satan is ultimately behind the central rule or the central ruler of the tribulation. We know that he has given his power and authority to the human ruler known as the Antichrist. We also know now that here we are in chapter 17 and 18, and now in chapter 18 in our study, and we are seeing the destruction of the Antichrist, both the destruction of the religion of the world and now the destruction of the Antichrist central city, which is the city of rule known as Babylon. Babylon, you know, as just by way of reminder, describes both, not just the false religious side that the Antichrist will in fact destroy himself with the other kings of the earth. We notice that in verse 16 of chapter 17, the ten horns which you saw in the beast, these will hate the harlot and make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. So those along with the Antichrist will get rid of the, the false religion that is running that is rampant in the world so that the Antichrist is the only one being worshipped. That's known as Babylon, the great harlot of, you see that in chapter 17, verse 5. But that's not the only thing described as Babylon during the tribulation, the commercial side of life is also described under the term Babylon. And the commercial side is the center city named Babylon. 
And I don't want to go into all the background about that. You can get the previous three sermons on that and you can listen to those again. You'll be up to speed on all of that. But here we are in chapter 18. And we are watching ahead of time. This is future. We are watching uh, future history, if you will. We're watching what is to come upon the earth by way of God's final wrath. And we, through the eyes of the Apostle John, are seeing the final destruction of Babylon, the city. And we have taken the liberty to divide this up into just four sections or four parts. We've looked at a few of these. We broke it up this way. The verdict upon Babylon in verses 1 through 3. The summons or call from Babylon or from heaven uh, to the people of God and to the judgment to come upon Babylon in verses 4 through 8. So the summons from heaven. Today we're going to look at the cries of those on the earth in verses 9 through 19. And then in the last chapter or the last verses, just the symbolized destruction of Babylon. So we have heard the verdict of heaven upon Babylon. It's there in verse 2 of chapter 18. Fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great. Fallen. Utter destruction. That's what the word fallen means. This is the, the, the declaration from the heavenly realm. Fallen is Babylon the great. may not have been yet in history. It may not have been in the future history. But it is a declared reality. It's as good as done in the heart and mind of God. Fallen is Babylon the great. And so we've heard that verdict. We've heard Christ then call those who are his out of her, verse 4, come out of her, my people. To those who are yet to be saved, this is an evangelistic calling. This is yet again God's grace bringing his people away from that which he is now going to destroy. And if there are those who are saved who are there and participating by way of temptation through it all, this is a call to spiritual separation because her judgment is sure and her judgment is coming. And now the cries of those who have rejected the truth. This is utterly devastating, folks. And I want you to note this. That the whole earth is affected by the fall of this great city. This is a global collapse. All of the economic, all of the commercial systems of the nations are so closely linked with the kingdom of the Antichrist that this city is the hub, if you will, of the wheel. And when the the hub falls apart, when the hub goes away by way of the destruction of God, it causes the whole world to weep. Now the world here, we need to understand, is described by three groups of people. It is described by monarchs. This is going to sound like a sports team because I'm alliterating it for you. Monarchs. Merchants and mariners. (laughs) Debbie and I were laughing about that this week because she kind of gets a precursor of everything I'm preaching. And she said, oh, nice sports team. I said, yeah. 
Monarchs, merchants, and mariners. That's the group. Monarchs are the kings. The merchants are the, the mass wholesalers who control the world's markets. They're the emporium people. That's the word really here in the original language. It's where we get the word emporium. They're the ones who, who run the big conglomerates, the emporium owners, the, the wholesalers, the goods producers, the market machine. And then you have the mariners, that's the shipmasters, those who bring the goods to market, the, the retailers and everything in between that is involved in transporting goods from, from uh, the wholesaler to the home. Guess what? Every person is involved with that. You and I, with our own vehicles, go to the store, we get stuff from the store, we bring it to the place where we use it, and then we go back and we become a transporter. We're just, we're just transporting goods. Without the transportation of goods, there is no market. So we're all part of that. And notice, all of them are weeping. Verse 9, the kings of the earth are are weeping as they stand at a distance. They weep and lament over her. Verse 11, the merchants of the, the earth weep and mourn over her. Down in verse 17, every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning. All are weeping. The whole world is weeping at the destruction that God is bringing upon the central city of the Antichrist. And notice, all of them are weeping, but none of them are weeping because of repentance. None of them are weeping through a heart of repentance. This is the striking reality that we cannot go without noticing here. As I read this, as I was thinking through this and, and, and watching this unfold in my own mind's eyes, I'm reading it, I was struck by the reality that there's a whole lot of weeping going on, but there's no repentance going on. A whole lot of crying, but not for what they've done. Not for their acts against the holy God, rather... They're weeping for what they no longer have access to. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6, or chapter 5 and 6, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's a whole lot of mourning going on. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Listen. The comfort of Jesus Christ, the comfort that Jesus is preaching and teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is a comfort and a salvation that is found through Him alone and it is only found with those who mourn over sin. There is no comfort for those who refuse to repent. Mark that down in your own life, in your own heart. Keep that as a principle in your mind and and have that as a lens in front of your eyes as you evaluate the world and the sadness of, of people's lives. There is no comfort without repentance. That's what we find here. No comfort. A lot of mourning. No comfort. A life without repentance is a miserable life. 
There is no shortage here of deep weeping, but there is a vast shortage of repentance. Let's just look at these three groups and walk through this text together. Notice verse 9, the kings or the, the monarchs. The kings of the earth who committed immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city. For in one hour your judgment has come. The word king there can, needs to be taken just in a general way. This These are the governing heads of the nations of the earth. That's all it's saying there. These are the governing heads. These are are those ones that have joined with the Antichrist that we already saw in chapter 17 who destroy the religious side of life so that the Antichrist is the only one worshipped. These are the, the heads of the nations and they all come together under Antichrist. We might even equate it in this nation as our our governing official. In our country, we have a legislative, we have an executive, we have a judicial branch of government. In our vernacular, in our day and age, that's who he's talking about. These are the kings over our nation. And here, when the world approaches its end, these are the ones who are in illicit relations with Antichrist. So normally, that word immorality deals with sexual sin. Immorality, porneia, that's the Greek word, porneia. That's where we get our word pornography. It says they're committing acts of porneia. That's sexual sin. Any sexual sin outside the The design of God, how God designed it in its natural way. Anything outside of that, according to God's design, is porneia. So normally, when you read that in Scripture, it's anything outside the confines of marriage. Anything outside the confines that God designed as marriage. So in our day and age, that's anything that's outside how God designed the marriage that goes and speaks to every kind of sexual sin that we find in our day. Homosexuality, any of those kinds of perversions of anything according to what God designed as the natural marriage as He created it between a man and a woman. That's what the word normally deals with. And surely that is rampant during this time. But here also it has the idea of the betrayal of every principle of what is right. The word immorality here speaks to not just the sexual side of life, but but every side of life that goes against the betrayal of every principle that of what is right. It goes against anything that is morally set in stone by God. And it's so much so that they might enjoy the lifestyle that Babylon offers in return. That's why they're doing these things. They are immoral in every way. 
immoral in their sexual lives, immoral in their business lives, immoral in their personal relationships lives, immoral in every kind of way. Going against what is right in every avenue they can. And notice they live sensuously with her. Sensuously with her. That's just luxuriously. So here John is seeing the physical and the religious side of life. Anything that is outside the way God naturally created it, both physically and spiritually. In other words, if we bring it to our own life, even today, just to kind of give us a picture of what that looks like, these are the politicians. These are the politicians of every day who are engaged in every kind of luxurious debauchery available for the sake of themselves. We're kind of acute to that in our time, even now, this time of the year, because we are so bombarded by the buffoonery of the politicians of our day. And their only response to what is happening only reveals their true heart all the more. They lament, they weep and lament, it says in verse 9, over her when they see the smoke of her burning standing at a distance because they fear her torment. They fear what is taking place because the implications are upon them as well. And they say, whoa, the great city Babylon, the strong city, in one hour your judgment has come. You see, when they see the capital city of the Antichrist falling to its knees, being destroyed by a holy God, they really can begin to feel what they're losing at their very core. As long as Babylon is still running, as long as the the brain trust is there, and it's still cranking it all up, then the, the focal point is still in operation. The central hub of the wheel is still working. But when the city begins to fall, they begin to see the smoke of her burning at a distance. That's when they weep. That's when they lament. doesn't matter what's going on around them. As long as that's happening, as long as spoke of the wheel's happening, everything's still good. So this means that the destruction of the capital of the Antichrist world government, having them having committed acts of immorality and sensuality, they have become drunk in the wine of her immorality. They have literally tied all of their possessions into that system. Everything they know. So that when she burns, you know what they lose? They lose their first love. Remember, Jesus said that back in chapter 2 and 3 about Ephesus. You're on the verge of losing your first love. They were following Jesus Christ, but they had forgotten Christ. They had grown cold. And here, these people... Their first love is everything of the world and their first love is now being destroyed. You say, wow, this seems rather harsh. I mean, you hear people say all the time, the God of the Old Testament is a harsh God. The God of the New Testament is all about love. Really? God has done all this before, folks. This isn't the first time that God has done this, lest we think this is new or this is different. You can go back all the way to Ezekiel. 
In the Old Testament, as Ezekiel prophesied about the future, and especially prophesied about the cities that he was living in during the time, and he prophesies about Tyre, the great city of Tyre in Ezekiel chapter 27. And notice there, when you read it, I don't want to go there, but when you read Ezekiel 27, 26 and 27, you notice the same three groups of people who are weeping over the destruction of Tyre, and all of the same things that were here are illustrated in Tyre as she too is destroyed. Remember the fire that came out of heaven to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? It will come from heaven after this. In Revelation, there will be a fire that comes from heaven. It will give the final death blow to the armies of the earth as they fight against Christ. I'll just show you this because it's only a couple pages over. Chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, after the millennial kingdom reign of Jesus Christ on the earth, Satan is released again. Satan is released to go and deceive people, and he deceives many. Verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan is released from his prison and and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. A number of them is like the sea of the sand of the seashore. It's, It's innumerable. Satan does quick work in the hearts of an unsaved man. Verse 9, And they came up to the broad plain on the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, that is Jerusalem, that's the beloved city. And what happens? Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Fire came down and consumed Sodom and Gomorrah. In the end, fire is going to come down and consume the rest of those who reject Jesus Christ, who even live through these plagues. So as the social media outlets and the the television outlets and the the worldwide view of, of wars going on and everything else, as they are reporting all that's taking place as Babylon is falling, the lesser governments are watching. They are openly sobbing. Sobbing not for what they've done against God. Sobbing for what they have personally lost. And they fear the torment that is being brought upon her. Why? Because theirs is coming and they know it. They know it. Did you notice, even as I just read uh, verses 9 and 10, that nobody's rushing to help Babylon? Nobody's saying, oh, look at poor city, we've got to save the city. Nobody's running in like, like firemen run to the trouble. Nobody's doing that. Nobody's rushing to help them. They're all standing at a distance. They're all just watching. They're all helpless. They can do nothing as terrifying pictures of the scene just grip the world. I love the the wording, God's specific wording, especially in the original language. We sometimes don't get it in the original, or or the original doesn't come across in the translation. But when it says, the woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, the original wording is the city, the great Babylon, the city, the strong. That's how it's worded. The emphasis is there. The city, the great Babylon, the city, the strong Babylon. This city was 
and will be seemingly invincible. We know the seal judgments have happened. We know the trumpet judgments have happened. We know the bull judgments are starting to happen and will finally come full fruition at the end of the tribulation, which we're watching right here. And the the city seemingly has somehow through human ingenuity survived all of that or, or at least showed some sense in which there is some survival through satanic influence and power. Only the strong Lord can deal with a strong city. And when He does, notice it only takes an hour. When one hour your judgment has come, you read commentators who will say, while it says one hour, 60 minutes is an hour, that might mean uh, over a certain period of time, obviously not a long time, but, but not necessarily 60 minutes. I don't know if any reason why we shouldn't just take it as 60 minutes. This is rapid destruction. This is tsunami-like. Oh, the arrogance. I think about this. The arrogance of men to think that they can reject the holy God. The arrogance that once you and I, all of us here who know Jesus Christ, stood in, stood in our own arrogance thinking we could do it on our own. And here we see that to its full fruition, if man's heart isn't challenged by holiness, if man's heart isn't drawn to God through the sovereign hand of God, man stands in his arrogance thinking he can reject the holy God and be okay. thinking he can thwart the might of God and they can say, we don't need you, God. We, we don't need anything about you. And we don't want you at all. In fact, you don't even exist. No man will be unaware when God intervenes in history. No man. And all the politicians will be left weeping. And so will the merchants. Merchants. This is the second group in the list. Verse 11. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. First you had the monarchs weeping, those who direct the countries and the politicians of the earth. Now you have the merchants, the the wholesalers, the the emporium owners, the consumer moguls, if you will. They begin to join the weeping and they they weep and mourn over her, but purely for monetary reasons. They're not crying because out of a heart of repentance they know they've dishonored a holy God and they cry for mercy upon the, the throne of God. No, they're crying because they can't sell their goods. Their sales figures just had a rapid downturn. They're not concerned about people. They're not concerned about sin. They're sad, yes, but they're sad because prophets have taken a major downturn on for them. They're weeping over their wallets. It's interesting, John lists here 28 items of stuff. 28 items of stuff. One commentator I read categorized these under eight different markets you will. I like this list. I wanted to give it to you. Just look at it with me quickly. You have the investment market. 
They're, they're, no one buys their cargoes anymore, verse 11. Cargoes of, this is the investment market, gold, silver, precious stones, and pearls. That's the money market. Remember, John's seeing this with, with eyes from a perspective that he can understand what's happening and how trade happened during his day. But that's not what the future is going to be like. This is just simply talking about money. This is the money market that, that, that they're sad about. In the money market, it's a major downturn. Nobody's buying and selling. You talk about a crash. This is a monumental global crash. Then he moves on. He talks about fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet. You know what that is? That's the commodities market. The commodities market. The the consumer goods, the things that you and I wear, the things that we use on a daily basis in in the sense of a, a consumer good in commodities. And then you have the materials market. Wood, ivory, bronze. Iron, marble, anything made like that, anything made from those kinds of materials, this, this materials market is crashing. There's no sales happening there. The investment market is crashing. No sales there. The, the commodities market is crashing. No sales there. And then you have the things of luxury that only the, the rich had. The, the luxuries market. And here represented in verse 13, cinnamon, spice, incense, perfume, frankincense. All the things that only the people who had the means to get would ever have the means to get. Very costly things. That's crashing as well. Investments gone. Commodities gone. Materials gone. Luxuries gone. Then you have the food. Food market. That's being destroyed. Wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat. That's the food market. That's the things that people need just to sustain everyday life. That's crashing. Nobody's buying those things anymore. Following that, the livestock, cattle, and sheep. The livestock market, the, the, the market by which there's food in the meat area coming to market, that's crashing. Then you have transportation, that's crashing as well. Cargoes of horses and chariots. That's the transportation market. That's going downhill. Crashing at a rapid pace. And then you have manpower, slaves, and human lives. Slaves and human lives. Isn't it interesting that slavery, that kind of forced labor, is going to be brought back? Wow. You see, these business moguls cover the gamut. The emporium owners, the the business moguls and tycoons who are who are driving business. They run the gamut of it all. And verse 14 sums it up. The fruit you long for has gone from you. What's the fruit? The money. They weep. Why? Verse 11. Because nobody buys their cargoes anymore. That's the fruit they long for. The fruit you long for has gone from you. All the things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you. And men no longer find them. Gone in a moment's notice. The world economic system is collapsing. 
right before their eyes. The politicians are watching it fall. The businessmen are watching it fall. And they are saying the same thing. Notice verse 15. The merchants of of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance. They're not running to help. They're standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment. You see, they know their day's coming. They're so tied and so linked to that that their day's coming. They're just waiting for the tsunami wave to reach them. They're standing at a distance. They're weeping and they're mourning. But they're not weeping and mourning for the right things. They're saying, whoa, whoa, the great city. Uh, You see what they're saying? Our Savior, the one we're attached to, the ones we've relied on, everything we've relied on, our Savior. The one who's clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been laid waste. Everything we've held near and dear is gone. Listen, this is global crash. It's interesting that if you read this... Maybe not so strange to us as we live in the 20th century, 21st century. It's interesting that business and government have come together. That's not how it always was, folks. It wasn't always like that. In ancient times, in fact, all the way up to the French Revolution before the Industrial Age, government and business didn't commingle. They were separate entities that never commingled, but that is how. It is in the end. We even see it more and more in our day. Bailouts and lobbyists who buy politicians. And in the end, they'll be completely dependent upon each other. And here they're weeping and they're mourning, not for something that is necessary or for sin, No, they mourn only for their luxury. They lost their luxury. To the kings, this is a mighty city. This is a strong city. She'll withstand all the things. She's withstood all the previous calamities. She's strong. To the merchants, she's the place of wealth. Place of riches. Each one of them see her in terms of their interest. They look at it as what they can get from it. And for the world leaders, it's political. For the business moguls, it's monetary. Verse 17 says, In one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. Like I said, this is a market crash like no other. And then the morning passes from the monarchs to the merchants and now to the mariners. Verse 17 through 19. And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying. They saw the smoke of her burning saying, what city is like the great city? Did you notice? Did you notice that this final group is itself described by four subgroups? 
These encompass everyone else, shipmasters, passengers, sailors, and everyone making a living by the sea. Remember, John is looking at this from the perspective of his ancient understanding. He's, he's understanding these things from, from what he understands and knows about economy and trade and commerce during his day. But, but he's writing, and he's writing to us from that perspective in his own understanding. But that will not be how it is in the ancient time, or in the future time. surely going to be different than this in the future or how things pass from one place to another. Shipmasters, that's, that's simply the shipping merchants. We have people who ship. We don't just ship by, by ships on the sea. We ship things by air. We ship things by car and truck and, and any mode of transportation where we can get one thing from one person to another. That's the shipmasters, those who are the shipping magnets, those who transport goods from point A to point B. Passengers, notice, passengers, anything transported, that's what that is, especially people, anything transported. So this is the shipping, you think the airlines aren't shipping magnets? They're shipping magnets. They ship people all over the world. In fact, when I was an air traffic controller, more aircraft hauled mail than the U.S. mail. You know why? Because they make a lot of money hauling mail. In fact, one time when I was flying, because I got to fly in the cockpits because I was an air traffic controller, I got kicked off a plane because I weighed more than the mail and I wasn't making any revenue for them. You need to go. We got too much weight. They took off with the mail, left me standing there. I got on the next plane. That's what happens. Sailors, those whose livelihood depend upon the transport industry, And workers, that's the fourth group. Anybody and everybody who makes a living that comes from the cargo shipping. Guess who makes a living from the shipping of cargo? All of us. All of us. There is no commerce without material going from point A to point B. All of us are involved in that process by way of our work. So everyone else. So you have the the politicians. You have the, the moguls of industry. You have everyone else. This is the world involved in everybody's weeping. In fact, I didn't realize this. Joe came in my office this week and we were talking about this. I was just reading upon this and we are talking about the movement of cargo across the sea. And I, I had seen something this week recently about a new large cargo ship that had been made recently. In fact, it's, it's three meters wider than the Panama Canal. So it can't even go through the Panama Canal. I thought, man, that's a big ship. So I looked up on the Internet. Internet's amazing. Good tool for us. And I looked at this ship. This is the largest cargo ship to date. Now get this. This ship can hold over 18,000 crates. Now you know what a crate is. A crate is not the crate you carry your apples in. A crate is those things that you see on the road where trucks are pulling them. It's, the, it's basically the backside of a, of a semi-truck. This thing can hold 18,000 of those at one time. If you stood up 18,000 crates on top of each other, they would be 365,400 feet tall. Or almost 70 miles. 
In fact, the exact number of crates this ship can hold is 18,270. They have a total volume of 24,847,200 square feet, nearly seven times the volume of the NASA Vehicle Assembly Building. Seven times the volume of that building. That's where they house the space shuttle, and that building has its own weather system. This is seven times that size. This building is huge, or this boat is huge. In fact, I found it interesting in the article. It said 18,270 crates spread out over a single layer would cover more than half of Vatican City. I don't know if that says how huge this is or how huge the Catholic Church is. It's only half of that. This is a massive ship, and that's just one container ship. Talk about moving goods, shipping things across the world so that people can have them. Listen, that's a massive thing. And here it's all collapsing. The smoke that rises from the burning of the central city brings the same response. And yet, all for the wrong reasons. They're only losing interest. They're losing what they have. They're losing what they, what they could have, which is attached to her, and they're weeping that the wealth is gone. That's what they're weeping. You say, how'd they become wealthy? By providing very costly things. Verse 19 says, Woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth. That word wealth there is really the word costliness. They became rich by her costliness. What's that? They wanted everything the best. Babylon wants everything the best. And they're made rich by providing it for her. And now it's gone. In one hour, verse 17, in one hour, verse 10, in one hour. The monarchs weep, the merchants weep, the mariners weep. And we can't help but hear the words of Jesus Christ in our ears. When Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world but lose his soul? It's all they live for. You know what's sad about all this? They've heard the gospel. The 144,000 Jewish evangelists have preached the gospel throughout the tribulation. The two witnesses who God miraculously raises from the dead have preached the truth of Christ to the tribulation people. All of those who have come to know Jesus Christ during the tribulation, who have placed their faith in Christ, have preached the gospel to people around them. God has even sent to the people of the earth during the tribulation His angels to fly in mid-heaven and proclaim exactly this, Woe, woe, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, and preach the gospel to all people. They have 
all of that experience and still they are totally consumed with self. Still those things which will perish and they have no thought for their eternal souls. This is tragic. And yet this is where the world's going. People try to tell me all the time, oh, the world's getting better, it's getting better. I mean, the tribulation's already happened. Really? Uh, that's not the way I read it. I mean, I'm just reading the words here, and it doesn't seem to make sense to me that way. Things aren't getting better. Things are getting worse. The materialism of our day will seem like child's play during the tribulation. You say... Well, is Babylon going to happen? I mean, is it really going to be a city? Is it really going to be like this? Is this the way we're heading? Several years ago, 1991, a book came out written by Charles Dyer called The Rise of Babylon. You can still get it. In fact, I looked even recently on Amazon. You can get it for as cheaply as 84 cents. In that book, he says this, quote, Picture a cloudless late summer or late summer night along the banks of the gently flowing Euphrates River. Thousands of guests and dignitaries walk by torchlight to the procession street leading into the city of Babylon from the north. They line the street flanked by massive walls to watch row upon row of soldiers with swords and spears and shields and helmets march mass on the procession street toward the Ishtar Gate. Interspersed among the ranks of the soldiers are groups of musicians playing harps, horns, and drums, children carrying palm fronds, and running and runners bearing bowls of smoking incense. The crowds follow the last of the soldiers through the Ishtar Gate and into the city of Babylon for the concluding ceremony of the evening, a tribute to Ishtar, the mother goddess of Babylon, unquote. And then he says this, A scene of pagan worship in the time of Daniel? Question mark. No. A scene I witnessed, he says, in September of 1988 as part of the second International Babylon Festival held under the patronage of Saddam Hussein. Unquote. 1988. Saddam Hussein may be dead, but the Desire to rebuild Babylon is not. And so therefore the fact still remains, folks. Babylon will come again. And God, when He intervenes, man will weep for themselves when they need to repent. Here's the irony. Here's the irony. There will be rejoicing. There will be rejoicing. But that rejoicing will not be on the earth. The rejoicing will be in the glories of heaven. Notice what we'll see next week. Verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Remember the prayers of the saints under the altar in chapter 5? Vindication has come. God has pronounced judgment for his saints.
We'll see that next time. Let's pray together. Father, what, a, what an amazing time we've had this morning just to reflect upon these things. We know our world is heading that way. We dare not deny it. We know you have given us clarity as much as you would have us have clarity to these things. Surely there are debates over minute issues that come and go, but we know the solid fact of the reality is there is an Antichrist who is being raised up and he will rule the day. You are faithful and just to save your people who you're calling to yourself. We know you will fulfill your promise to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people. We are thankful for that and we are thankful that you, by your grace, have grafted in those who are not Jews. Meaning our salvation is by the same grace that we see being displayed by you even during the tribulation. And we thank you for that. And we pray that you would embolden us even this day so that others would not face these things, that they would be able to escape the fire that's to come, that they might know Jesus Christ, that they may be part of your eternal kingdom in glory. Lord, give us boldness to share the gospel today because of these things, knowing that they are coming. For your word even tells us at the end of Revelation, blessed are those who who not only hear these things, but follow after them. So we are to proclaim them with all clarity and all uh, truth. We say it with a heart of uh, compassion and love and desire that others might know you, that none would be standing there like Matthew chapter 7, saying, Lord, but we knew you when they really don't. So Lord, cause us here this morning to have that evaluating heart, to look at these things with an eye Uh, that trusts you, that knows you're sovereign in salvation and motivate us to be those who go into all the world and share about Jesus Christ for this day is coming. And if there be those here who don't know Christ this morning, Lord, or maybe even are unsure about their profession of faith, Lord, that they would open up, that they would talk to us, pull a deacon aside, somebody aside, anybody aside here who knows Jesus Christ and begin to talk to them so that they might be clear on these things. And if they don't know Christ, this would be the day. For today is the day of salvation to all who would believe. And we'll praise you because of the Savior in whose name and whose life we are saved. Praise you for him and because of him. And all God's people said, Amen.